0: Oh, good morning everyone! Someone was kind enough to put up a church set in here. Some guy made this. So I guess I'll use it to preach from. I thought I'd pull off a costume change as well, just so I, you know, looked appropriate and everything. A weekend such as this, it brings a lot of proud parents to our campus. I suspect there's even a few of you visiting. In fact, I know there's a few of you visiting with us here this morning. And uh, perhaps a few of you, especially you dads, took a little bit of time to give some typical dad wisdom to your son or your daughter here in in college or in high school. You you know the sort of things I'm talking about, right? Like, if all your friends jumped off a cliff, would you do the same thing? Will this, whatever it is, even matter in ten years? Check the oil. And possibly the famous... You know what? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Whose dad at some point in life reminded you of that? But has, any, has anyone here ever fallen for anything that's, that's too good to be true? Anybody? Anybody willing to admit to doing so? Maybe? Yeah, a few of us probably have. Big or small. Let me tell you about something rather big that a lot of people fell for that... Turned out to be too good to be true. In 2004, Stanford University dropout, Elizabeth Holmes, founded a company called Theranos, which she claimed was going to revolutionize the entire healthcare industry and medical testing the world over, and change the world. She talked continually about changing the world. And she did her best to channel Steve Jobs, even to the point of always wearing a black turtleneck sweater wherever she went, just to be more like Steve Jobs, who was her hero. Her plan was to create a blood test that could use only one drop of blood, much like a diabetic testing strip, only it would test for any and every illness known to humankind. This was going to revolutionize everything. And man, did she sell this. Venture capitalists poured money into her new company. Rupert Murdoch was in on it. The Clintons were in on it. The Waltons of Walmart were in on it. It got huge. Elizabeth Holmes became the first self-made female billionaire in history. Around 2015, Theranos was worth $9 billion dollars. There was, a, there was word about a contract with the Department of National Defense in the United States that they were already using this product for battlefield medic uses in Afghanistan. Time and Forbes and Fortune were just heaping on the accolades. She was winning awards. There was just one problem with this whole setup, and guess what it was? There was no test. There was nothing except for a prototype that could only test for one disease and not even very reliably. In fact, most of the medical testing they were doing, they were just running on standard lab equipment at a hospital to, to try to keep the whole scheme going. A journalist with the Wall Street Journal finally blew the whole thing open. And as it stands at present, Theranos and, uh, is declared bankruptcy, many investors lost tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars, and Elizabeth Holmes is currently charged with numerous counts of fraud. Frequently, things that sound too good to be true are. They are total scams. But every once in a while, they're not. I would invite you to stand, as we, our custom is, at least at Caronport Community Church, for the reading of our sermon passage for the day. We're going to start at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. At verse 5 of chapter 1. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she hid herself, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So it's Advent. It's that time of year when we enter into the anticipation of, of God's people and the coming of Jesus as we move toward Christmas. We anticipate with God's ancient people, Israel, as they awaited their Messiah. And we ourselves also remind one another that we are waiting too. We wait for that day when the Lord will return in power and cause all things to be made new and right. But let me take you back 20 centuries to when these words were written, in the days of Herod the king. This story happened in a real time, in a real place. This isn't a myth, this isn't a legend, this isn't something we wish was true. This is a historical account. And of all the Gospels, Luke is the most intent on tying the events he writes about in the life of Jesus to historical framework and what we would call the secular historical accounts in world history. King Herod ruled over the southern portion of Palestine, Judea, and he ruled it with an iron fist. Herod was a cruel tyrant who pales in comparison with Hitler and Stalin only because he did not have the technology to commit mass murder on the scale that these more modern dictators did. Friends, let's remember that as we think about our own situation and our world situations, with mass murders, political unrests, wars, natural disasters, the world the story we are looking at takes place in was not so different from our own. Why is that? It's because all times and all places are disfigured by human brokenness and sinfulness. And it's into that that the first tiny spark of the light of our Lord's coming, is struck. There was a priest named Zechariah. The first character we meet, besides the the passing mention of King Herod, is this old man, a priest, called Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers, which will be important as we unfold this story. Zechariah and Elizabeth are a model couple. He's a clergyman, and she's from a priestly family, too. They are righteous, living, good people, the kind of people you would love to have as next-door neighbors. They practice their faith in day-to-day life, and they live it out. A model couple in Israelite society, except for one thing. They are childless. And in that culture, this was, of course, considered a grave misfortune. And sadly, they have now passed the age and stage of life where they can reasonably expect that they will have a child. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple and burn incense. And despite of what might be considered a grave misfortune in life, Zechariah does receive a great honor. He is chosen to go into the temple and offer incense. And this was, as all the commentators will tell you, a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You see, there were many priests... So many priests by this time in Israel's history, they were divided into different cohorts. Still numbering in the hundreds, if not thousands. And these cohorts would serve in the temple for one week at a time, twice per year. Just a refresher on the temple worship. The center of the temple was, of course, the holy place, or the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, to prevent the sacrifice for the nation. And just outside of that, the Holy of Holies was what was called just the holy place. That's where the altar of incense was. So not, not inside the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where you only went once a year. But still, even in here, the priest only went a couple times a day, morning and evening, to offer incense before the Lord and to offer the prayers of the nation of Israel. And so this is what Zechariah was given the privilege to do, a once-in-a-lifetime thing and there he was, a great honor. In, in his culture, this would be like being knighted by the queen or receiving a Nobel Peace Prize. This is the culmination of his career. He has fulfilled his life calling as a priest. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. And suddenly, as it's in there, it would have been dark. The doors are shut. The only light coming from the, the fire that he was using to offer the incense And we don't know what exactly happened, whether there was pyrotechnic displays like we have here, or or quite how the angel appeared to him, but somehow he realized he was not alone. And he is afraid. This tends to be the way of it whenever people in Scripture encounter the angelic messengers from the Lord. Of course, this was even more pronounced in Zechariah's case. You have to understand, it's been 400 years since since God has really been communicating with his people. Since Malachi closed out the Old Testament. Yes, there were, there were plenty of other theological works, treatises, and other things written in that time. But no more prophecy. No more scripture. For 400 years it's been this way. Think of 400 years ago. We were in the, in the 1600s. That's a long time ago. And that's how it's been for Israel. Israel. This sort of thing just was not expected to happen any longer, and yet it does. What does all this mean? The angel says to him, Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. So this angel tells Zechariah that his prayers have been heard. What was Zechariah praying for? A child? Well, the next line might make us think so, but remember, the prayers he would have been actually saying as he was offering the incense at that moment were prayers for the nation of Israel. That was what the priests did. They bore the prayers of the nation of Israel before the Lord when they went into the temple. Zechariah would have been praying that God would restore and vindicate his people. This was a major concern of morning and evening prayers within the Judaism of the day, And it represented the heart cry of the people of Israel who, though they were in their land, were still in bondage to Rome and in still crying out for redemption. So they longed for the day when their deliverer would come, when the Lord would send his servant, Messiah, to restore his people. The prophets had spoken about this for centuries, back in the time when the Old Testament was being written. But then... As I said, for the last 400 years, nothing. Just silent, waiting. And yet, they still kept that hope alive, even in dark times. And into that darkness, the first spark was struck. Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. This frames this next part about your wife Elizabeth bearing a son in a much larger context and bigger sense. Elizabeth isn't just going to have a son. That's nice. She will have a son who will have an integral role in making the next stage of God's plan happen. He will be the one who will prepare the way for the Lord. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you see what's happening here? Things have gone dark and silent for God's people for 400 years but now that is all about to change. The last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, Closed out the era of the prophets with these words. Listen to the echoes. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger in the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And then listen to these final words of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Do you see? Do you see this? This is picking up where we left off. The angel is basically saying last time on God's covenant with his people. And now the conclusion. We're picking up where we left off. Yeah, there was 400 years in here, but game is back on, right? We've had a timeout, but now the play clock is running again. God is sending his messenger to bring word that the 400 years of silence is coming to an end. Or to borrow from C.S. Lewis, Aslan is on the move. And this is where Zechariah balks at the whole thing. This is where the, this is too good to be true, starts to kick in and the wheels start turning somewhere in his thought process. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah just can't quite swallow this. I mean, it'd be amazing if it was true, but this is a bit too much. We should step back and and examine for a moment how biblical prophecy frequently works Throughout the Old Testament, when when a prophet would make a prediction of something very big or something in the future that was going to happen, he would frequently provide a short term sign that would happen sooner, and that would serve as a proof or a vindication that the longer term prediction was in fact going to come to pass. It would be a prediction of something that would happen soon, usually within the next year or so, that would validate the truthfulness of the long term prediction. And in this case, the angel Gabriel is, in effect, speaking prophetically, and he follows the pattern. Right? There's going to be this big thing. God's happening with his people is going to come. And the short-term sign of this is going to be that Elizabeth, even in her old age, is going to have a child. That's the, the sign that will validate and, uh, the truthfulness of this claim of what God's going to do. But it's just too much for old Zechariah. I mean, perhaps he and Elizabeth have just been, just been disappointed too many times over the years, hoping against hope that maybe they would have a child. Maybe this had just become too personal for him, and so he doubts. And you can see why. 400 years of living in this kind of half-exile, in their land but ruled over by pagan nations. 400 years of God's apparent silence. It's easy to criticize Zechariah, and, and there is a certain something to it. Perhaps he and the rest of his, his priestly colleagues had gotten into the habit of just going through the motions, not really even expecting that the Lord might someday answer their prayers for deliverance, and perhaps disappointments in never having a child just put the icing on that cake and made him disappointed, even bitter, and yet... There's still this spark, but is it just too good to be true? The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I think this is supposed to be funny. You think you're old, Zechariah? I'm an angel. I saw the world created. In any case, I think it's also supposed to be funny that God is starting to speak again and now it's Zechariah's turn not to speak anymore. He's going to be mute and unable to speak. Zechariah wasn't so sure about the short-term sign regarding Elizabeth conceiving and having a child. So the angel's like, "All right, we're going to have to have an even shorter-term sign than one that's going to happen in nine months or so from now. How about one right now? You can't talk anymore, Zechariah. And, and, and it happens. He, he can't say a word. And we know the rest of the story. Zechariah is unable to speak. He goes home. Elizabeth gets pregnant and eventually they welcome their son into the world. What do we do with this story Because there is a sense, right, in which we we expect that we should be able to to put this in practice somehow. That every Bible story ought to have some kind of a lesson that we can apply in day-to-day life. I could boil it down to something like, if the mightiest of all the archangels appears to you and tells you that something miraculous is going to happen, you you should believe him. That might be a little ham-fisted, and that might be a little offensive to Zechariah, given that he wasn't going anywhere near ham. Thank you. Perhaps I could boil it down to something like this. We, we frequently face things in life that sound too good to be true, because they are. But with the Lord, nothing is too good to be true. That's better, but still perhaps a bit weak and small scale for the, the, the grand themes that we're trying to deal with here. I think if we're going to really understand this passage, we better skip ahead and actually read what happens when Zechariah is, is able to start speaking again. I'm just going to read that last bit. What happened when John was born and then when they named him and Zechariah was able to speak. to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Do we see this? Do we grasp this? What's this story about? An old man and an old woman finally being able to have a child? That someone lacked faith in a crazy promise? Something sounded too good to be true but actually was? Not, Not ultimately. The story is first and foremost about the Lord God Almighty doing what he has always done. This whole story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is just loaded with echoes back to the Old Testament of what God was doing and was continuing to be doing over thousands of years with his people. Remember Abraham and Sarah in their old age with no child and God's promise that they would have a son through whom his covenant would go forward. Remember God's promise to Hannah that she, even though she was barren, would have a child who would be leader of God's people, Israel. Remember how over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament story of God's dealings with His people, whenever it seemed the most dark and the most hopeless and the most discouraging, that's when God would show up. And remember how He used the most unlikely of people to achieve His purposes, Slavery in Egypt, lawlessness in the time of the judges, apostasy under so many of Israel's wicked kings, exile in Babylon, a stuttering runaway named Moses, a little shepherd boy named David. It goes on and on. History doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it so often rhymes, especially sacred history. Why is that? It's because it's the same God who keeps showing up again and again for His people, regardless of how faithful or how faithless they've been. It's the same God who delights to bring good out of hopeless situations. It's the same God who keeps on choosing the unlikeliest of people and circumstances. And here we see just more of the same. So there is a sense in which God's purposes in the world are too good to be true, and yet... They are true, but not in the way we usually think of, in the sense of personal gain, but in a much deeper and richer way. They're true in the sense of fulfilling the the deepest yearnings of our soul for what we most long for, but aren't sure we even dare to hope for or give voice to. God's promises tell us that there is always hope, even in the midst of what seems impossible and hopelessly dark. And furthermore, But there is always hope that goes beyond just our own concerns into the realm of God's larger purposes in this world, for this world, that thing which we call His kingdom. There's hope that goes beyond just what makes sense in the moment and what our minds can grasp. It's the thing I love so much about this season of the year. And I believe that our, our... annual musical production. It's always a good reminder of this. Right? That for a few short weeks of the year, we and even our larger secular culture seems more open to actually believing this. Right? That's why secular recording artists still record Christmas albums, even with with religious songs on them. Singing, O Holy Night, that Christ is born saying better than they know, I think. It's because I believe we're all more open to actually listening to those deep heart yearnings for something more and something better, something bigger. I attended and have looked in on a number of the the productions over the weekend. I mean, we have some pretty pretty big moments. John goes flying up there in the sky, and Daryl lights the pyro up, up here on the front of the stage. People hitting notes that if they went one higher, only dogs could probably hear. Um, it's it's an impressive thing, but I want to tell you what my favorite my favorite part of the weekend was so far. It was yesterday afternoon. It was a good crowd, I think, and and Sterling was was reading the Christmas story from the choir loft up there. And yesterday afternoon, when he finished reading the Christmas story, he said the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God and and wrapped it up and the audience clapped when he finished reading the Christmas story and I thought that's that's my point that's my point right there people are hungry for what this story tells us about of hope in a dark time So, so happy that they clapped for the reading of God's word and I was just I was just blown away by that that that's that's my highlight Right? People are, are yearning to believe that something, something more than what they see in their everyday, drab, and even, even miserable, sad, hurtful experiences might actually be true. And so I'm going to close with a little reading from one of my favorite stories. I mentioned this earlier C.S. Lewis. If you know the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, there's these four kids that have been sent away from their home to live with this old professor, these four kids, and the youngest, Lucy, finds her way through this enchanted wardrobe into this land, right? The, inside of the wardrobe is this, this whole country that exists in there, and her other siblings don't believe her. And so they go to the the wise old professor and ask for his opinion because they think he'll he'll talk some sense into her. Or perhaps maybe she's even starting to have some mental troubles, they think. So I'm just going to read this little bit here. The result was the next morning they decided that they really would go and tell the whole thing to the professor. He'll write to father if he thinks there really is something wrong with Lou, said Peter. It's getting beyond us. So they went and knocked at the study door, and the professor said, Come in, and got up and found chairs for them and said he was quite at their disposal. Then he sat listening to them with the tips of his fingers pressed together and never interrupting till they had finished the whole story. After that, he said nothing, quite a long time. Then he cleared his throat and said the last thing either of them expected. How do you know, he asked, that your sister's story is not true. Oh, but began Susan and then stopped. Anyone see, could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, But Edmund said they'd only been pretending. That is a point, said the professor, but that certainly does deserve careful consideration. Very careful consideration. For instance, if you will excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? Well, that's just the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up until now, I'd have said Lucy every time. And what do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. This couldn't be true. All this about the wood and the font... That is more than I know, said the professor, and a charge of lying against someone you have always found truthful is a very serious thing, a very serious thing indeed. We were afraid it mightn't even be lying, said Susan. We thought there might be something wrong with Lucy. Oh, madness, you mean, said the professor, quite coolly. Oh, you can take, make your minds easy about that. One only has to look at her and talk to her to see that she is not mad. But then, said Susan, and stopped. She'd never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor and, and didn't know what to think. Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Susan looked at him very hard and was quite sure from the expression on his face that he was not making fun of them. "'But how could it be true, sir?' said Peter. "'Why do you say that?' asked the professor. "'Well, for one thing,' said Peter, "'if it was real, why doesn't everyone find this country every time they go to the wardrobe? "'I mean, there was nothing there when we looked. "'Even Lucy didn't pretend there was.'" "'Well, that's the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true,' said the professor." If there really is a door in this house that leads to some other world, and I should warn you that this is a very strange house, and even I know very little about it. If I say she had gotten into another world, I should not be at all surprised to find that the other world had a separate time of its own. But, but do you really mean, sir, said Peter, that there could be other worlds all over the place, just around the corner like that? Nothing is more probable, said the professor, taking off his spectacles and beginning to polish them, Well, he muttered to himself, I wonder, what do they teach them at these schools? I read that because I think it well illustrates the point that we can get so caught up in our our everyday kind of cynical way of looking at the world that it can push aside the imagination of faith that might dare to believe that God might be doing something bigger and better. Than anything we can imagine. That there's this whole other world. Not called Narnia, right? But Narnia has always. If you understand what these stories are about. Narnia is is a metaphor and a symbol. For God's kingdom. Right? There's this whole other world. That intersects with our world. That the gospels call. The kingdom of God. Not only do they call it that. They call us to that. Expect the unexpected even if maybe it sounds too good to be true. I can think of no better way to to make that tangible than what we're going to do to conclude our service. We're going to gather around the Lord's table, and we're going to celebrate His presence with us, even as we look back, on his sacrifice on the cross, and as we look ahead to his returning glory, right? This is what the Advent season is all about. We look back in remembrance, we celebrate our Lord's continuing presence with us, and our connection one with another as the body of Christ, as the family of God, and we celebrate him until he returns again.